But this uh, live as if every day was your last. You cannot follow that. You can't make yourself a sandwich. This is the last sandwich I'll ever eat. You'll just be weeping all day. If all we're thinking about is our own mortality, or the bestial atrocities of the human race, we'll all just take opium until we die. So not only can we not... Opium? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know what the kids are doing these days on the street. We're still in the 19th century. Um... Hi, everyone. Today, Claire and I will be talking about the meditations by Marcus Aurelius. He is one of several Stoic philosophers, another being Seneca, an author to whom I will now turn for the quote of the day. Seneca writes, Putting things off is the biggest waste of life. It snatches away each day as it comes, and denies us the present by promising the future. The greatest obstacle to living is expectancy which hangs upon tomorrow and loses today. You are arranging what lies in fortune's control and abandoning what lies in yours. What are you looking at? To what goal are you straining? The whole future lies in uncertainty. Live immediately. And for more on how to live immediately and a lot of other things, let's go into that chat with me and Claire. So what makes this a great book? I like the bite-sized sections, I guess. They're not just short, but they also feel like accessible, that you can actually take it into your life and practice it. It's actually very practical advice. Okay, for example? My absolute favorite one that I have already started to, to hear sort of in the back of my mind all the time is from book four number 49, he says, Does this thing which has happened hinder you from being just, magnanimous, temperate, judicious, discreet, truthful, self-respecting, independent, and all else by which a man's nature comes to its fulfillment? So here is a rule to remember in future, when anything tempts you to feel bitter, not, this is misfortune, but, to bear this worthily is good fortune. And I think that is... Very practical advice. There's there's not a single day in which something bad, you know, doesn't happen. Mm. Something something difficult comes up every day in varying degrees of difficulty. But um, it's a very empowering thought that you could, instead of saying, this is all happening to me, this river is just washing over me, you could be the helmsman, another word he uses, you can be the helmsman of your soul and decide that you're not going to let that difficult thing change your character. You're going to bear it worthily. Mm. You can even turn it around to be an actual actual good fortune. I mean, that's that's an extremely hopeful and empowering thought. That you're lucky, the good fortune. Yes. It's like you're lucky to be asked to bear this. Yes. Because it elicits new strength from you. Right. How could that look in real life? I don't know. <laughs> I read this book and feel like uh, a lot of work to do. But not impossible work. It sounds doable. Well, there are a lot of, I mean, I didn't know exactly how to structure this conversation. If you, if I thought maybe we could like go back and forth and trade our favorites or we could organize them by themes. Mm-hmm. Maybe the theme part is best. You started off with emphasizing his injunctions to not whine, basically. Yeah. Is that too crude of a paraphrase? No. <laughs> it's not? No, I don't think so. I be- mean, he says, don't be bitter. Don't so. be bitter, yeah. Isn't that the most common, I feel like that's the most common um, human sentiment, this is not fair. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And, yeah, actually, in fact, that that might be the most prominent theme in the whole book. This tendency, we have to say this is not fair, but how... Actually, everything is, nature is just and does her job. So, for example, this is book six, Meditation 36. All proceeds from one source, springing either directly or derivatively from the universal sovereign reason. Even the lion's open jaws, the deadly poison, and all other things that do hurt, down to the bramble bush and the slough, 
are byproducts of something else that is itself noble and beautiful. Do not think of them, then, as alien to that which you reverence, but remember the one origin that is common to them all. Yeah, that echoes the Bhagavad Gita very well. Yeah, there's this similar theme of interconnectedness and the unity of all things. Right, and you can't say that one thing in nature is hideous and another beautiful. I really like this in book three. He says, When a loaf of bread, for instance, is in the oven, cracks appear in it here and there, and these flaws, though not intended in the baking, have a rightness of their own and sharpen the appetite. Figs again at their ripest will also crack open. When olives are on the verge of falling, the very imminence of decay adds its peculiar beauty to the fruit. So too the drooping head of a cornstalk, the wrinkling skin when a lion scowls, the drip of foam from a wild boar's jaws, and many more such sights are far from beautiful if looked at by themselves. Yet as the consequences of some other process of nature, they make their own contribution to its charm and attractiveness. I don't know. The wrinkling skin when a lion scowls. I mean, that is... What an observation. I know. For him to say that's not beautiful if looked at in itself, I think, are you sure? It's pretty beautiful. I get the foam from a wild boar's jaws. I know. But the, uh, yeah, I mean, the general point that he's making... Is that death is the mother of beauty. <laughs> yeah. Like Wallace Stevens says, it's the mortality... And the change within everything, literally in everything that we know, and in ourselves, that can make things beautiful. Not detract from beauty, but make it more beautiful. But this is only because of the interconnectedness of things, you know, because there is right. no separating the wrinkles of a lion's scowl from the majesty of the whole creature or the whole ecosystem in which the creature lives. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't have that wonderful loaf of bread without its cracks or you know you can't have ripe fruit without potential for rotten fruit right and in our experience we can't have happiness without sorrow mm -hmm. um, i really like the way he puts those things all on the same level as being natural rather than good and bad yeah there's no moral assessment to calamity or you know it's so easy to go through life thinking this isn't fair or this isn't right or this isn't just he says, no, it is. Nature, there's a really wonderful part where it says, nature delights in change. And that is so true. In book five, uh, Meditation 13, he says this, I consist of a formal element and a material. Neither of these can ever pass away into nothing, any more than either of them came into being from nothing. Consequently, every part of me will one day be refashioned by a process of transition into some other portion of the universe which in its turn will again be changed into yet another part, and so onward to infinity. It is the same process by which I myself was brought into existence, and my parents before me, and so backward once more to infinity. Very beautiful thought. What do you like about it? I can't remember where this has come up, probably in our chat about the Bhagavad Gita, but yeah, that complete extinction is impossible. Yeah. Change is somehow easier to deal with than annihilation. Mm -hmm. Annihilation, you know, according to Marcus Aurelius, is impossible. Right, Things, a mountain just doesn't disappear. There's no, there is no such thing as disappear. Right. It's all simply flux. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean it's hard to say goodbye to people that we love or aspects of our lives that we've cherished, but it does soften the blow. It does, yeah. Every once in a while, I'll have these beautiful moments where I'm out in nature and I'll suddenly understand or I have these glimpses where I fully accept that, you know, one day I'll become part of that landscape. Yeah. And it's a really beautiful thought. And I always wish I could hold on to that acceptance and, and peace, but I don't know how. <laughs> I mean, this book keeps repeating these lessons over and over within itself. Um, yeah. And maybe that itself is a lesson you have to keep repeating. Yeah. They're called meditations, and I think they are in these little short sections, as you described, partly for that reason, because they need to be ingested kind of regularly. Yeah. It's a wonderful book for many reasons, but, uh, you know, it's one of those books that you can just sample. You can just flip through. You don't have to read from beginning to end. 
Yeah. Here's another beautiful section on the same topic. We shrink from change, yet is there anything that can come into being without it? What does nature hold dearer or more proper to herself? Could you have a hot bath unless the firewood underwent some change? Could you be nourished if the food suffered no change? Is it possible for any useful thing to be achieved without change? Do you not see then that change in yourself is of the same order and no less necessary to nature? Mm. It's a very beautiful writer. It's firewood. Yeah. And the wild boars and the olives, the ripe olives that are best when they're almost rotten. Yes. He says, look beneath the surface. Never let a thing's intrinsic quality or worth escape you. And he does practice that himself as he describes things in detail, like the lion skull, the, yeah. the wrinkles, cracks on loaves of bread, cracks in the figs as they ripen. I really like that because you can use that kind of observation in two ways, at least. You can look at something deeply and discover its worth, but also you can look at something deeply and realize that it's not of the importance that you thought it was. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Sometimes he's, he talks about, um, you know, when you're offended by someone, look deeply at yeah. their motivations, or if you are confronted with passion, really kind of dissect what that thing is that you're lusting after, you know. Deep beneath the surface is really just very unimportant things. <laughs> well, this is a good point. I mean, we could maybe start raising some obje objections. Yeah. I don't want to give people the impression that this isn't a beautiful and profound and necessary book. Mm -hmm. For me, it's one of those books that is absolutely necessary mm -hmm. to, to life. However much I love it and however wise it is, there are some moments when I think, I want to push back a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Is it possible he doesn't love life enough? I don't know. I've, yeah, I mean, Do you know what I mean? Right. To say, it's okay when you die. It's okay if the people that you love die because everything will dissolve back into nature and will be reunified with this eternal oneness. That has an evil... I think that attitude is good and noble and true, but it has an evil twin. Which it's is, awfully close to nihilism. <laughs> yeah, so he says things like, says things like this, and I, I, I want to pause and say... I don't know about that. He says, he's quoting Epictetus here, another Stoic. While you are kissing your child, Epictetus once said, murmur under your breath, tomorrow it may be dead. Ominous words, they told him. Not at all, said he, but only signifying an act of nature. Would it be ominous to speak of the gathering of ripe corn? Yeah, I know. I paused at that one too. In fact, I even today as I was driving, I looked in the rearview mirror at my daughter sitting there and I you thought about this passage, and I thought, first of all, it doesn't bring the comfort that it seems to bring Aurelius, and and I, I'm not sure if I want to think of it that way. She's not on the same level as a stalk of corn, in my eyes, <laughs> you know? Maybe in the grand scheme of things, but... Yeah, we can't value our children the same way that we value dead corn. I know, there always comes a point with these sorts of teachings, like also with the Bhagavad Gita, where you wonder... What's the goal here? Is it numbness? Being neutral? And that cannot be the goal. I'm sure it's not. And, and I even wonder sometimes with him, with Marcus Aurelius, if, if he's protesting too much, you know? He's trying to make himself believe that it's okay, that things pass away, it's okay, things decay. And I'm sure he believes it in many ways. I, I mean, I do too. Yeah, there's a two-edged sword here. I'm very ambivalent and conflicted about this. I find it consoling, but also, like I said before, I want to push back on this a little bit. I, eternal perspective is good, and to be able to not be attached, back to the Bhagavad Gita language, mm -hmm. to, be able to, to be able to achieve detachment from things that will absolutely be taken away from you. Mm -hmm. You can't prevent their being taken away. Yeah. So it is necessary to learn how to cope with that. Mm -hmm. And Marcus Aurelius offers some profound help there. But I, I, we don't want to be too okay with letting it go. Yeah. I'm, I've been reading Nietzsche a lot lately. And can I read you, can I read you some Nietzsche? <laughs> sure. Um, Nietzsche has a problem with Socrates. Socrates. Socrates comes, of course, a few hundred years before Marcus Aurelius, but exhibits many of the same attitudes about life. Famously on his death, he was tried by the city of Athens. Socrates was for 
stupid reasons and accepted his death, didn't fight back. In fact, described his life as a disease and was kind of longing to be healed from it through death. And Nietzsche finds this attitude despicable. So this is at the beginning of The Twilight of the Idols. Nietzsche says, In every age the wisest have passed the identical judgment on life. It is worthless. Everywhere and always their mouths have uttered the same sound, a sound full of doubt, full of melancholy, full of weariness with life, full of the opposition to life. Even Socrates, as he died, said, To live, that means to be a long time sick. Even Socrates had 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 enough of it. What does that prove? What does it point to? Um, And then he says, um, Socrates wanted to die. It was not Athens. It was he who handed himself the poison cup, who compelled Athens to hand him the poison cup. Socrates is no physician, he said softly to himself. Death alone is a physician here. So, you know, that's one reason I love Nietzsche so much is because he's so pro-life. And I think if we asked him, you know, what, what I like about Nietzsche is that he honors all of our flaws and vices and pains and pettiness and vanity and grief and all of our self-sabotaging motives because they are an inescapable part of life and nothing is better than life. You know, they can be mitigated and curbed a bit. Apparently Nietzsche was an extremely kind and compassionate man. In fact, he collapsed. This is kind of at the breaking point of his sanity. Right before he was taken to an insane asylum, he he embraced a horse that was being beaten hmm. on the street and tried to prevent this suffering. But to deny or renounce pain or grief or even vices is to deny life itself. So Marcus Aurelius saying, oh, don't worry, your atoms are eternal and you'll just transform and go to some different place and some different shape. And we're all part of the great web of being is in some way an attitude that denies life. You know, Nietzsche would argue that we should go kicking and screaming. You know what I mean? We, we, yeah, should, we should not say goodbye to life so easily. We well, should go kicking and screaming out of his have, life. He does have mixed messages because he says, look in beneath the surface of all things, see the intrinsic value, live in the moment. But yeah, if you kind of think of it in a way that, well, I am going to die. I'm just going to become part of the universe or be part of the universe forever as it goes through changes. Then there is a risk that you're just living in that future rather than in the moment. Right. Yeah, just like with religions that, and the ideas of afterlife, there is a risk that you're not living in the moment because you're seeking comfort in another state. Well, um, he, uh, another one of the themes of the meditations is the wonderful focus on the importance of being in the moment. Yeah. Like in Book 8, 36, he says, Never confuse yourself by visions of an entire lifetime at once. That is, do not let your thoughts range over the whole multitude and variety of the misfortunes that may befall you. But rather, as you encounter each one, ask yourself, what is there unendurable, so insupportable in this? You will find that you are ashamed to admit defeat. Again, remember that it is not the weight of the future or the past that is pressing upon you, but ever that of the present alone. Even this burden, too, can be lessened if you confine it strictly to its own limits and are severe enough with your mind's inability to bear such a trifle. I think that's beautiful and wise. And it's it's advice I have actually taken before in real life oh, yeah. in a practical way. For example... Airplanes. <laughs> Airplanes, yeah. You were, you were so sweet once when I had to fly to Germany after years of not having been on a plane. I am really scared of flying. Um, you put together some quotes for me <laughs> to read on the airplane. They were supposed to make me feel better. And I think this, Marcus Aurelius was on there. Uh, yes. And he helped me through that flight. I tell you what. <laughs> yeah. Because I kept thinking, well, what's so insupportable in this very moment i'm sitting here comfortably food is being handed to me right the guy sitting next to me is okay (laughs) right (laughs) and even if he wasn't that wouldn't be so unendurable exactly i'm not crashing right now i can deal with this moment right now yeah there is no such thing as the unendurable i mean kind of I mean, I have this social anxiety, and my therapist has asked me to take this advice of Marcus Aurelius and to ask, actually, in that moment, ask myself, what is there that I'm experiencing right now that's so bad? If I'm in a social situation that's causing my anxiety to spike, I think, okay, what what does this actually mean? It means that my heart is beating slightly faster, that my breath is slightly heightened, and maybe my cheeks are slightly flushed, 
but this is not pain. Mm-hmm. All of this I would experience, you know, in very mild exercise while walking to work. I would experience the exact same physical condition mm-hmm. so while walking to work. So actually being in the moment, instead of thinking into the future, oh, you know. What does this mean for the future? Yeah, or the past. I said that stupid thing that yeah. I think I'm an idiot. No, no, no. The moment only is with you and it's quite endurable. So again, this is a very true and wise book. And right. it, it, I, I'm, it's not my modus operandi to call out contradictions. People contradict themselves all the time, which is a wonderful aspect of people. But there, there does seem to be conflicting injunctions here. I know, but I like that. It proves his point that all things are constantly changing. His mind, his soul is constantly in a state of flux, you know? And he says and believes different things at different times. Does that make sense? Um, I think, I mean, within a small range. I mean, I think you and me are... He doesn't fundamentally change his yeah, thinking, I think he, but... You, you and me are kind of wishing that he would expand his range of contradictions and on the next page say, well, actually, you know what? Death sucks, and life is good, and you shouldn't accept death so easily. And it is fundamentally different when your children die from when the corn ripens and falls. That these are not equivalent things. You know, I want to see him sticking up for life a little bit more. I know, but don't you feel? I think one thing that's so moving to me about the book is that his love for the world really comes through. His love for life comes through in this constant repetition of no it's actually okay what what's the big deal with dying it's actually okay you know what i mean okay uh, you could be right that on a meta level if you zoom out even more he has these wonderful things i think i read that one about nature like the jaws of the lion and the the beautiful scenery these come from the same place they have one source uh-huh. they're ingredients in the same thing which is called the universe there's one thing yeah. And it's called the universe. Yeah. It includes all things and all time and all atoms and all elements and all people. Mm-hmm. And it's very good. It's He calls it nature. His word for this is nature. Yeah. And he loves nature. Yeah. He thinks that this totality is divine, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is beautiful. This might be the best part in the book. This is book four, Meditation 48. Remind yourself constantly of all the physicians now dead who used to knit their brows over their ailing patients, of all the astrologers who so solemnly predicted their client's doom, the philosophers who expatiated so endlessly on death or immortality, the great commanders who slew their thousands, the despots who wielded powers of life and death with such terrible arrogance as if themselves were gods who could never die, the whole cities which have perished completely, Hellas, Pompeii, Herculaneum, and others without number. After that, recall one by one each of your own acquaintances, how one buried another, only to be laid low himself and buried in turn by a third, and all in so brief a space of time. Observe, in short, how transient and trivial is all mortal life. Yesterday a drop of semen, tomorrow a handful of spice or ash. Spend, therefore, these fleeting moments on earth as nature would have you spend them, and then go to your rest with a good grace, as an olive falls in its season, with a blessing for the earth that bore it, and a thanksgiving to the tree that gave it life. Yeah, that's pretty much the best quote ever. (laughs) Hardly gets better than that. I think that's absolutely true. I can think about the death of my children in that worldview and think, they're all they're, in, in a sense they're like olives and their ripeness was divine but it wouldn't be divine if it was immortal their mm-hmm. ripeness this is that great king lear thing you know in act four ripeness is all and then gloucester saying well a man may rot even here this this contradiction this paradox that we mm-hmm. don't get ripeness without rot so i can i can envision this kind of totality with stoic resolve thinking about the death of my loved ones as a part of beautiful nature, it is time. They have had their ripeness and now it is time. Mm. Um, but I think in moderation, you know, I think in moderation, I think too much of that, if you think, well, what does it matter? You don't want to think, what does it matter? I think this word trivial maybe is, I don't know what the Latin is. It'd be interesting to look up this word in Latin, but there's nothing trivial about life. No, but I, I do appreciate that he's trying to 
take some of the seriousness out of it and just give us a reality check. It well, seems more kind than stern, do you know what I mean? It's serious, too. Yeah. But it's not... Um, I feel like a lot of the book argues, you know, against us being surprised all the time. He's trying to right. help us understand that this is normal. In fact, I had this funny thought, you know, a little while ago, people, it was popular to uh, say on social media, this is not normal. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I don't know what's popular on oh. social media. <laughs> well, you know, when Trump became president, a lot of people kept, you know, using the hashtag, this is not normal, because people were worried that it would become normal. Oh, I see. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I thought if he had like... A mantra, it would be, this is normal. <laughs> if Marcus Aurelius had a mantra. mantra yes. Yeah. It would be, this is normal. Not meaning don't, you know, change things that are within your power um, to be, you know, bring about more justice, etc. And good things, but... Well, you put your finger on, exactly on the paradox here. I mean, how much do we accept <laughs> and how much should we fight to change? Right. And that is the paradox. That is the paradox. But when it comes to nature and change and decay his main thing is this is normal don't be surprised don't be shocked the earth study change so that when it happens you yeah. know what it is that's a great way of putting it study change look at the olives ripening and then falling study yeah. that process so that when you see it happening to yourself you're not surprised it is normal yeah that's that's amazing advice so i get it with the corn it's like you What's, what happens to the corn will happen to my children. I don't think he's saying it's the same thing, but probably just, you know, it's this steady change business and related to your children as well. I know, but I, there, I just, there's, there's a, there's a little gremlin with a, with a walrus mustache, a Nietzsche mustache in my brain <laughs> who is saying, when I hear this, who is saying, no, 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 no. You have to scream and kick, you know. Anything, life is so good and so precious. All that matters is life. So to let it slip out of your grasp with the smile on your face, ah, a ripe olive. No, I no, think, no, no. I don't know. I, I think I want to weep and scream and say, no, yes, no, no. I, I, I totally believe in passion and in grief and in letting yourself feel all the love and passion as, you know, as much as possible. I believe that. And, but, and even negative but, things, not just passion, even yeah, negative passion, yeah, anger, yes. spite, yes. all of these self-harming things that we have. It's like we should – to deny those is also to deny life. To deny the fear of death, he's saying, like, don't be afraid of death. It's normal. Don't be afraid of death. It's normal. But the fear of death is part of life. Mm -hmm. so and a great me, motivator too. Yeah, part of me wants to hold on to the fear of death and be mm -hmm. like, no, this is a sign that I'm alive. I know, but coming from a health anxiety perspective, I can tell you that this book is extremely soothing. I'm just like, oh, it feels so good to be in the presence of someone who is just calm. No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and who's saying, you know, very, <laughs> very gentle, calm things about it's an extremely, <laughs> It's an extremely calm and gentle and soothing book. And, and it it is clearly written from the point of view of a man who has achieved more wisdom and clarity than I probably ever will be able to. I mean, I, I see in him somebody who truly loves nature, who doesn't want to be a bitter person who blames events. You know right. what I mean? Right, right, right. That's what I see. And it's so intrinsic in me. I mean, it's, it's such a huge part of me. Whenever something happens, especially related to my health, I feel it feels like a betrayal. Like, yeah, the nature yeah. is betraying me. Like, you know, like, why doesn't my leg work on, a, on this last run or whatever? But it's, I, I love that I could instead try to compare myself to, I don't know. Yeah. In fact, sometimes I think about this kind of stuff when I'm running and I, I'm always passing dead birds. I don't know if that happens to you, but I always see dead birds. Right. And I think, I'm not different than that bird in many ways, and no. I'm lucky right now to still be running, and today is my day to keep going, and not the birds, but... Like you kind of are that bird. You're Adams, and that bird's Adams. Well, yes. You know, Whitman maybe read Marcus Aurelius, I'm, I'm not sure. It's just, you know, that bird is an appendage of you, and you are yes. an appendage of it. Yes, exactly. I do feel um, a kinship to the bird, whatever dead birds I pass, and I think... I get to do this at least one more day. 
or one more moment. Exactly. I love this. This is a positive version of what you, the point you're making. He says this in Book 7, Meditation 56. Take it that you have died today, and your life story is ended, and henceforward regard what further time may be given you as an uncovenanted surplus, and live it out in harmony with nature. Every day is a surplus. We don't, we don't yeah. even deserve one day. Mm-hmm. That's a great attitude. You know, we, we can think of an illness or a death as a in- great injustice. Mm-hmm. When really, even to have lived for one day is an undeserved surplus. We didn't deserve ever to have been born. Yeah. And here, I've had 37 years. I can't believe it. How did I get so lucky? I know. And I, I really like his focus on the present moment when it comes to lifespans. He's, you know, often oh, so talks about uh, what's, there's not really much of a difference between somebody who lives a hundred years and a person who lives five years, because you can only live in the present. And in a way, I feel like... <laughs> you Nietzsche mumbling through his mustache. I mean, I get I get what you're saying. I totally agree. I totally agree. Like, I mean, I get greedy, you know, sometimes I'm like, I hope that I could live another 80 years and I think... No, not 80 years. <laughs> well, why not another 80 years? Or, you know, live another to be 80. <laughs> right. Live to be 80. But then there's this strange realization that I am only ever living in the present. You don't have. You don't amass years that you yeah. then have in storage. <laughs> He's so right about that. You don't have anything but one thing at a time. Exactly. And that's... So, in a sense, yeah, living 80 years is the same as living five, but... But there's always this but, you know, you don't want to say that it's okay that kids die. Yeah, no, I, yes. Let me also they say that when it comes to kids, this book gets very complicated. <laughs> Actually, this goes back to Nietzsche. Um, he has, it's just like dual Nietzsche and Marcus Aurelius. I didn't really mean to give him half of the mic here. But uh, he says this in The Gay Science, Nietzsche does. He's actually explicitly criticizing the Stoics. He says, The Stoic accustoms himself to swallow stones and vermin, glass splinters and scorpions without feeling any disgust. I think that's hilarious, right? He's <laughs> like, oh, this is great too. This is part of nature as he, swallow- as he, as he swallows glass, you know? It's pretty funny. <laughs> His stomach, the Stoic's stomach, is meant to become indifferent in the end to all that the accidents of existence can cast into it. Mm. Um, and then he says... Uh, he also likes well to have an invited public at the exhibition of his insensibility. <laughs> you know, look at me. Look at how great I am at enduring all this stuff. Nietzsche has kind of a point here. Is he talking about uh, marathons? He could very well be talking about <laughs> annoying Instagram marathoners. Yeah, then the line would be very thin between acceptance and fatalism. You know, you would have to find a way to accept all the unpredictable things that could happen. Yeah. But then also not lose control of your will and reason. Yeah, often with this book, I feel like he's saying, just accept everything that happens. Nature, you know, has a perfect plan, etc. While I don't exactly think of it as a plan and rather just nature's nature. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, nothing premeditated, you know what I mean? But uh, I, I really like when he says, How is my soul's helmsman going about his task? For in that lies everything. All else within my control or beyond it is dead bones and vapor. First of all, that's beautiful. I, I love the idea of the soul's helmsman. Why? Again, it's, uh, it's empowering. While trying to accept nature and change, to also put your reason in charge, not just to lie back and let things happen, but to, um, to know that there are some things that you're in control of. For example, your attitude in life, your level of bitterness or appreciation or i mean his thesis seems to be that's all that is in your control yes exactly the only thing you can control is your attitude i know and in this lovely um edition that we have of the meditations the cover has this famous quote a little flesh a little breath and a reason to rule all that is myself yeah you're this ephemeral finite thing with you're like a speck of dust attached to this brain that can realize that it's a speck of dust mm-hmm. and you can't control the winds that are blowing the speck of dust you can't control how long the speck of dust will last mm-hmm. you can just control your thinking about this process and you can fight against it 
and like try to fight against the wind and learn that you're powerless or not learn that you're powerless and still try to fight against it. That's a kind of waste of a life where you can say, you know, I am part of the one thing. Blow me where you will. Yeah. To bear this worthily is good it, fortune. And to bear it worthily. You know, I especially like this, this quote that I read about a little breath because I, I'm somebody who's always worried about my health. But um, I kind of, I have mild asthma. With this quote, I feel like my my uh, asthma is a lot less important than my reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in a very real way. I mean, in a sense, therapists are, are almost more important than doctors. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, or, or they are more important, not certainly as important. Yeah, they teach you how to how to deal with change. He says we should live every day as if we're dying. I was going to talk to you about that. Is that good what advice? I have always had a problem with that idea. In in a way, I like it because then it's like, oh, you know, spend extra time with your loved ones and show them only well, kindness. And there's well, no time for, for even the slightest bit of anger, et cetera, et cetera. But what, I mean, it sounds horrible to me, honestly, to live each day as if it was your last, especially from somebody who has health anxiety. <laughs> you know what I mean? Then you're always thinking about death. I mean... I honestly, I think it's impossible to live that way. I think it's impossible. I'm trying to find the quote here. In fact, I almost believe like you, you should, in a way, live as if you were never dying. <laughs> but of course, then that would also have some bad side effects. You need both. You need. You need. Create as if you were going to live forever. Dance like no one's watching. No, no, no. <laughs> and live like you're dying. We're we are now no. writing a country song. No. No, back to Don Quixote, you know, you need cultivate your inner Don Quixote who says to the world, I am noble, I am powerful, I can, you know, the world is beautiful, there is a point to getting up in the morning because I can slay giants. It's mm -hmm. kind of a boundless optimism. Yeah. Live as if you're not dying. Exactly. You need that. Yes. But he He's paired in this novel with Sancho Panza who says to him, those aren't giants, those are windmills, you're crazy, don't be crazy. You need a realist. Mm. You know, so there's this constant um, balance, I think, that needs to be drawn. This constant balance. What to does that look like in real life? <laughs> All of this is aspirational. I feel like a total hypocrite every time we do this because it's like, oh, yeah, this is how you should live. This is how you should live. I don't know how to live. Well, I'm, it's I'm painting a picture of what I wish I could do and who I wish I could be. I mean, yeah, I get that. So I don't exactly know. It's what I'm trying to aim for. I mean, but don't you feel like so much, so much of this advice is actually followable? <laughs> followable. <laughs> well, okay, let's talk about that because but, in seven, yeah. But this uh, live as if every day was your last. You cannot follow that. Seven sixty nine. This is what he says. Book seven, uh, meditation sixty nine. To live each day as though one's last. Never flustered. Never apathetic. Never attitudinizing. Strange word. <laughs> Here is the perfection of character. You must be right, Claire. This isn't possible. Roman generals would have yes. people following them, whispering them in their ears, you are you are going to die, you are going to die. This memento mori. Mm -hmm. They needed this reminder. They needed the reminder because it's not something a brain is capable of. You can't make yourself a sandwich. This is the last sandwich I'll ever... You'll just be weeping all day. It's <laughs> a, a great retort here. Yeah, because um, Theodore Adorno has this, I think, quite annoying... I mean, I shouldn't say annoying... I get his point, I suppose. You know this statement of his that he says, how can one write poetry after Auschwitz? Yeah. Auschwitz has happened and everything is absurd now. Poetry, most of all, doesn't matter. You know, making beautiful little poems about flowers when there are death camps. Yeah. It's absurd. How can you keep writing poetry? Mm -hmm. Poet we both really like, Mark Strand, has a retort to that in which he says, well, how can you make a sandwich after Auschwitz? You know, it's like, are we all supposed to just commit collective suicide? Mm. Well, of course not. Of course not. We have to keep making sandwiches. Mm. That makes me think, sorry, you had something else. Well, no. And if, if all we're thinking about is our own mortality or the bestial atrocities of the human race, we'll all just take opium until we die. Mm -hmm. This is not good. Mm. So not only can we not... Opium. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the, the, the kids are doing these days on the street. They're doing Larda. <laughs> That's what they were doing. Laudanum. 
We're still in the 19th century. Um, the point is, not only can you not live every day as if you're dying, you shouldn't. No. You, you shouldn't. You have to forget your mortality sometimes. You have mm. to forget it. Yeah. Like to Nietzsche. Can I go back to Nietzsche? He says this. This is when one of his essays, The Uses and Abuses of History, says, like, in a sense, we have to be jealous of the cows who we can assume live a content life because they're not troubled with thoughts of their mortality. You know, there's no Hamlet cow. This is Hamlet's problem. Mm. You know what I mean? Hamlet's problem is that he thinks too much about stuff. Yeah. And he needs to learn to forget. The ghost tells him, remember me, remember me. But this is part of his curse. He needs to actually not remember. Mm-hmm. He needs to stop remembering and think, I'll just make myself a salad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's so Just true. make myself a salad. It's a good point. In fact, sometimes, especially when it comes to writing or, you know, any kind of art, creating stuff, you have to live as if you were going to live forever. Because you need to take your time. <laughs> if you were writing like it was your last day on Earth, I don't know what that would look like. <laughs> you know, you got to take your time with it. You have right. to let things stew <laughs> for a while. So, yeah, it's it's really weird. I think a good motto is live every second Thursday as if it was your last day on Earth. What? <laughs> what is that? Well, it's a, it's a watered-down version of this. So you, need, <laughs> you need some of it, don't you think? You you don't want to yeah. you don't want to go for years and years without this realization that you're going to die until something horrible happens yeah. yeah so every once in a while you check in with yourself and say remember that you're mortal he's like oh yeah I remember yes it's and, good yes. in small doses this is good and do and then in the meantime as you're you know not focusing on death all the time in the meantime um, do what Aurelia says and and study change even yeah. if it's just in your garden. If you're noticing how your flowers are changing, growing, wilting, how pests kind of take over sometimes and ruin the cherries, you know, even if you're just paying attention to your garden, a small patch, that probably will do a lot to keep you in tune oh, yeah. with the metaphor, even just for change. I mean, I'm horrible at the outdoors. Yes. As, hey, don't agree so quickly. <laughs> I'm horrible. A little bit too eager. At the outdoors. <laughs> but I am. I'm yes. quite horrible at it. I don't, I mean, I do like it, I suppose, the outdoors, but you know, heaven to me, John Donne is right. Heaven is a library. Doesn't even need windows, to be honest. Um, so I don't really go out into our backyard very much. I certainly don't garden, but I can absolutely acknowledge the therapeutic power, the the what must be profound therapeutic power of a regular gardening practice. Oh, what is because yeah. you're you're confronted daily with ephemeral beauty, hmm. the, the 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 normalcy of ephemeral beauty. It's like oh, this is normal, as you were saying before. Uh-huh. Oh, this is normal. This is normal. This is yeah. Normal. And also when it comes to like assigning blame or moral qualities to things that happen. You're not going to. I have heard you curse the deer that eat the tulips. You do think, you do seem to think they're rather evil. Why did you have to bring that up? <laughs> but I'm joking. Yeah. You don't actually think they're evil. No, I don't. It teaches you taking care of a yard, for example, teaches you that there's, you know, you're not gonna blame a rose for wilting before its time. You're not gonna think a rose is weak, or a bush, a rose bush is weak for having not bloomed as it should have. And there's a wonderful, like, you know, this year, for some reason, we have a cherry tree in our backyard. And I noticed this year, it it didn't, the blossoms, they didn't really, mm-hmm. did you notice this too? I did, yeah. They were kind of like small and dull and gone in a day. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't this glorious, like week-long ecstatic eruption like it normally is. Mm-hmm. Something must have happened. I don't know, maybe not enough water over the winter or so. I don't know. Yeah, you're not going to go and say the winter was evil and it planned to ruin the yeah. cherry tree. But I also noticed that I had the attitude of, well, it's okay because, you know, there's a, always another spring. Hmm. I had that thought too, which seems to me quite a Marcus Aurelian thought. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, the, cycles, <laughs> the, the cycle will never end. Yeah. There, like, back to the very beginning of our conversation, there is no such thing as annihilation. Mm-hmm. You know, and there will always be cherry trees. And even if there aren't, you know, in 10 billion years, no more cherry trees, then there will be something else that's like a cherry tree. Mm. 
doing similar things. And even with when we first moved into this house, there we had a lot of slugs, and I absolutely despise <laughs> them. <laughs> I would have dreams about them. They were there were so many of them. They were just everywhere, and they were disgusting. They were huge. Some had, some of them had you leopard they were spots big. on then them. Then we went to Washington and saw the slugs there. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I started to think, wow, nature is a total freak show, and it has does not care about me. <laughs> point <laughs> it's not nature's job to care about you it's not about you this is maybe your point it's not about you nature is just doing nature's job the slugs were living their slug life as dog as he even says dogs do dog things <laughs> that's right um, men do men things yeah and what are what are human things according to aurelius yeah that's a good question well he yeah he says uh People are our proper occupation. Our job is to do them good and put up with them. Oh, wow, that's good, yeah. So we have a duty to be kind and accepting. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. And uh, also, he says, put your whole heart into doing what is just and speaking what is true, and for the rest, know the joy of life by piling good deed on good deed until no rift or cranny appears between them. So that's what we do. Slugs slug around. Cherry blossoms blossom, and we act justly, speak the truth, and pile good deeds on top of good deeds. Yeah. And if we're doing those things, that yeah, we can, we can we can know that we're being harmonious with the one, the one. Um, yeah. The duty of, of humans is to use their reason and to choose to do good things. We didn't mention the beautiful first book in which he just basically writes a litany a whole list of gratitude yeah, for a... the people in his life that taught him things and i think this is before we close we should say why this is an important way for this book to begin what it teaches us about proper living meditations it's yeah um it's it's, it's you know to summarize it's like just to give you a flavor of what i'm talking about um he says stuff like you know courtesy and serenity of temper i first learned to know from my grandfather Verus, and then it was my tutor who taught me this and from Rusticus, I derived the notion that this, and Apollonius impressed on me the need to do this. So he's making a list of people who taught him things and in whose debt he finds himself. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to start a book in which you're, in which you aim to teach people things by saying, "Look, I first was taught by all of these people." Yeah, if I have wisdom, it's it's not really of my making. It's the product of many generous and wise people who piled good deed on good deed and who are bearing fruit kind of now in me. Mm. Uh, and gratitude too. It's just this, this um, yeah, we're mortal. Yeah. We're going to die, but let's, let's not be so bitter that we can't be grateful for what was given to what, yeah. what was given to us while we were here. That stood out to me a lot in that book. He had, he has a lot of love for people. And as a politician, oh, don't even get me started. Can you imagine? How could he, you know, I would think a politician would would very easily become bitter about people. He's always talking, you know, don't be angry when people don't do what you want them to do when they act this or this way. Just accept that that's who they are. Or Politicians used to be great people. <laughs> Remember that? 2,000 years ago? Yeah. When it was true. And, and I thought there's a really beautiful moment, too, where he says, um, as you talk to people, you know, who make you angry or whatever, just remember the changes within them too. All of them die just the same way as yeah. as everyone else, and will become bones and vapor, etc. You it's know, extremely compassionate thought. I know to keep in mind your enemy's mortality and the way. Yeah, you're immediately sympathetic. Immediately, it's beautiful and loving towards them. Yeah. Do you want to read this? This is how the book ends. O oh man, citizenship of this great world city has been yours. Whether for five years or five score, what is that to you? Whatever the law of that city decrees is fair to one and all alike. Wherein, then, is your grievance? You are not ejected from the city by any unjust judge or tyrant, but by the self-same nature which brought you into it, just as when an actor is dismissed by the manager who engaged him. But I have played no more than three of the five acts." Just so, in your drama of life, three acts are all the play. Its point of completeness is determined by him who formerly sanctioned your creation, and today sanctions your disillusion. Neither of those decisions lay within yourself. Pass on your way, then, with a smiling face, 
under the smile of him who bids you go. There are many poems I could turn to for the poem of the day that have been influenced by Stoic philosophy. I think one of the most prominent is the Roman poet Horace. The very famous dictum Carpe Diem, Seize the Day, comes from the 11th poem in his first book of odes, which I'd like to read to you now. This is not my translation, though it is my kind of patchwork translation. No one single translator has produced a version that I love from beginning to end, so I've kind of stitched together bits from my favorite and composed a kind of Frankenstein's monster. Having said that, though, I think you'll see that this is an immensely beautiful poem, one of my absolute favorites. It could hardly be more beautiful. Like many of Horace's poems, this one is addressed to a specific person whose name is Laconier. Laconier, don't ask. We never know what fate the gods have given us. Don't waste your time on Babylonian calculations. How much better to suffer what happens, whether Jupiter gives us more winters, or whether this is our last, which even now wears down the Tyrrhenian sea on the pumice stones opposing it. Be truthful, strain the wine, since time is short, and cut back long hope into a small space. The envious moment is flying, now, now, while we're speaking. Seize the day, trusting as little as possible the unknown time to come. Uh, that's it for now. I'm not sure where Claire and I are going next, or even when. But in the meantime, keep reading and keep loving what you read. Mm-hmm.